This episode of New Politics was released on the 30th of September, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangul and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, Rupert Murdoch steps down and Lachlan Murdoch steps up, but will there be any difference? The resignation of Daniel Andrews. The head of the Home Affairs has stepped aside, but he also needs to resign. Should the COVID inquiry be a Royal Commission or not? And the latest opinion polls. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, announcing my candidacy for Victorian Premier. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. Rupert Murdoch has stepped down as the chair of Fox News and News Corporation and will hand over the position to his son, Lachlan Murdoch. And this isn't the end of Rupert Murdoch yet. He'll remain as the emeritus chair of Fox News and News Corporation and said that he'll move on to different roles. What they are, we've got no idea. There is an uncertain future for News Corporation, as it is for all other media corporations. The power and influence of mainstream media has diminished in recent years, but they'll still be around for some time in the future. There was a long list of political leaders and people in the media lauding Rupert Murdoch who were echoing that idea that Murdoch is a passionate and principled leader. But Rupert Murdoch has engaged in criminal behaviour in the past, as was shown during the Leveson inquiry in the UK in 2011. He's been a bad faith actor in three different countries, Australia, the UK and the US, pushing lies and pro-conservative propaganda in all of his media outlets. He's a pro-Vladimir Putin advocate. He was the major player in getting Donald Trump elected in 2016. And his media outlets pushed the lie that Donald Trump had the 2020 US election stolen from him, which led to the Capitol Hill riots in early 2021. And we've said this many times before, Rupert Murdoch should have spent some time in jail and should have had his media licence revoked in Australia. He's never suffered from the consequences of his actions and and at the age of 92, he'll probably never face the consequences of his actions. And I'm not expecting politicians to come out and say awful things about Rupert Murdoch, even at this stage, but sometimes it's best to keep quiet and say nothing at all. There's no doubt, as you said, that Rupert Murdoch has been a very destructive force on at least three democracies. It is in no small part, thanks to Murdoch, that we have had Scott Morrison, Dominic Perrottet, Matthew Guy, and a whole other bunch of non-entities whose names I can't even remember, ruining Australian democracy. I can point to a whole range of people in the British Parliament, Boris Johnson, Theresa May, all supported for at least a time, by Murdoch, Donald Trump, and the whole range of highly inappropriate representatives who are turning the American parliament into a clown show. It is thanks to Murdoch that gun law reform is very difficult in the United States. He's not the only actor, but his papers and his TV shows side with what is now the status quo. It's the same here. And you'll find too, if you look at Murdoch papers from England, from Australia and from America, that it's always the same themes, often the same types of scandals, always the same types of arguments with maybe a little bit of localization put in. Now we could put some of this down to globalization, of course, but in places where the Murdoch papers can't get a license, Canada, New Zealand, mainland Europe, you have a much better press, mostly. Italy is its own thing, although Berlusconi had pretty much the same type of virulent effect that Murdoch had in Australia, except worse, because Berlusconi actually got into Parliament. Murdoch's been smart enough to stay out of Parliament, much preferring to control things from the sidelines, as it were. Probably should save a lot of this till his eulogy, but his first major victory in Australia was Whitlam. And since then, he's been trying to do the same thing to a greater or lesser extent. 
I think, and we'll discuss this a bit later, we're seeing the end of this influence. But while Rupert is around, he won't let go of it easy. Now, with Lachlan, he doesn't seem to be the same caliber as his father. He has not been a eminently successful business person in his own right, and he doesn't get the same type of deference that his father gets. He's also apparently much further to the right than his father. That's something. <laughs> I think it's difficult to say at this stage what the future does hold for News Corporation and what Lachlan Murdoch is actually going to be like. But News Corporation is a blight on the media and political landscape in Australia, as it is in the US and in the UK. Now, it could be argued that something is right-wing, rabid, and obviously over-the-top as Fox News or Sky News After Dark is partially entertainment value and a lot of people can see it for what it is but it influences enough people for them to believe it and swing their political opinions or hardens their political views even further and some people do get radicalised as well and if the result of Fox News is the undermining of democracy to get clickbait and feed conspiracy theories that end up with the Capitol Hill rise, well, I think we've got a real problem. And I think that was a classic case of clickbait news headlines just going too far. The business model of Fox News and News Corporation, not just in the US, but in Australia as well, is to magnify particular sorts of news that creates outrage. And if that news that they're looking for isn't there, well, it's just made up to create that outrage. And Ultimately, to me, it seems like it's not even a good business model. By pushing that stolen election narrative at the 2020 US election, that cost News Corporation $787 million US in the defamation case with Dominion Voting Systems. And there's also the Smartmatic case, which could result in an even bigger payout. So if your actions are costing over $2 billion in lawsuits, well, that's not a very good business model at all. And when we say that Rupert Murdoch should be spending time in jail, well, we're not being facetious about that or trying to sound like radical anarchists about it. After the news of the world phone tapping scandals from 2011, Rupert Murdoch should have faced a criminal trial, but all he had to do was say some weasel words and everything was fine. Here's James Murdoch and Rupert Murdoch back in 2011. First of all, I would like to say as well just how sorry I am and how sorry we are. Uh, to particularly the victims of illegal voicemail interceptions and to their families. It's a matter of great regret of mine, my father's, and everyone at News Corporation. And these are standards, these, these actions do not live up to the standards that our company aspires to everywhere around the world. And it is our determination to both put things right, make sure these things don't happen again, and to be the company that I know we have always aspired to be. As for my comments, Mr. Chairman, and my statement, which I believe was around the closure uh, of the News of the World newspaper. Before you get to that, I would just like to say one sentence. This is the most humble day of my life. So that was a promise to clean up the act of News Corporation and get it to live up to the standards that they aspire to all around the world. And if anything, since that day, the standards of News Corporation and Fox News have actually become worse, they've become more unhinged. And if News Corporation had actually been given some harsh punishment, or at least some punishment back in 2011, and at a time when they were down on their knees, well, we probably wouldn't have had the spectacle of Donald Trump, we wouldn't have had the Capitol Hill riots, and closer to home, we wouldn't have all of that useless media bile coming from the offices of Herald Sun attacking Daniel Andrews and Labor interests over the past decade. So I think it's a good example of governments needing to come down hard on these kinds of media proprietors, and it's very likely that they'll let Lachlan Murdoch off the hook as well whenever that opportunity arrives. When he was giving his testimony in the House of Commons on a most disgraceful act, which at the time he characterised as the most humble day of his life, as you said, some moron broke through and hit him in the face with a pie. This actually helped Murdoch because it took away from the gravity of the situation. And the, the person who did it acted like it was some kind of major triumph when in fact it was disastrous for the process. Of course, the story was with Tony Blair is that he escorted Murdoch out the front door and then snuck him back through the back door. And it goes back to this fear that most politicians had of him. He must be quite somebody to deal with, that he can hold this fear over people and they can seem to genuinely like him. I know it got really complicated with Tony Blair and 
Rupert Murdoch and everything that happened there, but that's not for discussion here. In Australia, I don't know why the Labor government hasn't announced a Royal Commission into media, why it hasn't announced an inquiry of some kind into should News Corp keep its broadcasting licence or its media licence. I don't know why they're not just punching back rather than acquiescing. I know bad press isn't very nice, but I've said this before and you've said this before too, Eddie. You get one nice story, one good story, and then it goes back to general attack on everything. It shows how much Murdoch has influenced, I think, directly but also indirectly how media is done in Australia. People think they need to compete with the Murdoch model. The Guardian is guilty of it from time to time. Uh, the Sydney Morning Herald is, and The Age. Fairfax is definitely guilty of it. The ABC is definitely guilty of it. It shows the rise of independent media makes sense. It is a fact that even small operators like us actually outrate some of Sky News, which is both humbling and pleasing. Well, it's the most humbling days of our lives. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Hold on, there's a guy here with a pie. What are you doing? (laughs) I think Lachlan, if he's genuinely taking over, and there's a lot of talk to say he's not taking over, Chairman Emeritus is a title that doesn't have any real definition. It's most likely that Lachlan will continue doing exactly what his father tells him to. A luxury that Rupert didn't have, of course, and I guess we should bring in the historical precedent. When Keith Murdoch died suddenly, Rupert was considered not the best fit, and they all thought that he'd fritter the empire away. Rupert had to do it without a lot of advice from his father. He he and his father didn't get on very well. Now, he had some mentors who helped him run the newspaper business, and and it's funny how as these mentors died, the papers got worse. Lachlan, of course has had to struggle against his brothers and sisters and Lachlan and James struggled to take over for years. James eventually realised that the game wasn't worth the candle and has gone off to other things, still within the News Corp organisation mostly, but not with the aim of running the whole shebang. Lachlan does have his father there, which Rupert never had. And how this will shape things, it will be something that historians and psychologists will watch with great fascination, I think. Of course, we won't really know the difference till Rupert has passed um, or is so ill that he really can't do it anymore, although I can't imagine that he'll ever admit that. The the other factor is that Lachlan Murdoch will probably struggle against Lachlan Murdoch as well. There's a lot of internal issues that he's got to resolve. But David, you pointed out those rumours of Lachlan Murdoch being more right-wing and more fanatical about using the media for ulterior political motivations, and you're absolutely right. We'll never know until Rupert Murdoch leaves this mortal coil, because for as long as he is alive, that influence will still be there in the background. And there is that old saying that the first generation builds the empire, the second generation consolidates, and the third generation destroys the empire. And I think that Rupert Murdoch is probably fluctuating between consolidation and destruction. And with all of those defamation cases and waning influence, the empire might have already been destroyed. But the other issue is that Lachlan Murdoch isn't Rupert Murdoch. And people and politicians are scared of Rupert Murdoch. Lachlan Murdoch hasn't earned his stripes yet. And he's already had those business failures with one tell in the 1990s. And Sure, he's been spruced up a a lot over the past 20 years or so, but already I think that he's already made one bad business decision, and that was to nominate former Prime Minister Tony Abbott to the board of Fox Corporation. And if you're trying to send a message to the world that you've got business acumen and you want to change the direction of a company that's had a lot of problems in recent years and quite a few missteps as well, the worst thing that you could do is put Tony Abbott onto the board. And sure, he's a former prime minister, but he's a failed prime minister and he hasn't actually got any business skills. But that decision suggests to me that it's going to be business as usual for News Corporation and it's probably a business that's fast-tracking its own demise. I can't remember if it was the chaser or the shovel who said that Tony had been put on as the left-wing balance for the board. (laughs) Yes, Tony Abbott 
was a columnist for the Bulletin for or a journalist for the Bulletin for a bit. He was also the manager of a quarry. Does that mean we should put him in charge of a mining company? And I've probably just given them an idea. I think we've got to be careful looking at patterns. While I do think Lachlan is not competent, not his father's son, and taking over a dying empire, I'm not inclined to think that it'll definitely happen. I think it will almost certainly happen. And we can look at the Packer dynasty, which is gone 15 or 20 years after Kerry has passed. There is no real Packer organization. They still own a lot. They're still wealthy, but they're not the powerful force that it was when Kerry ran it. You can look at the Vanderbilts in the United States. You can look at the Hursts, a whole range of families who the wealth dissipates in the third generation. So it's likely that in another 10 years or so, that News Corp will just be a forgotten relic, the same way Australian Consolidated Press is. But News Corp, it's going to depend on the the personal will and the personal charisma and a lot of personal stuff of Lachlan Murdoch. And it seems that he doesn't have his father's acumen, his father's skills, his father's force of personality or his father's charm. But the same things were said about Rupert in 1964. So I'm reserving judgment for a few months. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon. Everybody knows that dice are loaded Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows that good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed That poor step the rich get rich That's how it goes Nine years ago, I visited Government House to be sworn in as the 48th Premier of Victoria. It has been the honour and privilege of my life. On three occasions, Victorians have endorsed me and my team in record terms. I'm very proud of that and I'm very grateful for that. I'm also proud to think of all that we have achieved over these nine years, in good times and bad always working hard to do what's right, not simply what's popular. Every day has been about the only thing that really matters, getting things done. Today I will again visit Government House and resign as Premier and Member for Mulgrave, effective 5pm tomorrow. It's not an easy decision because as much as we've achieved together, there's so much more to do. But When it's time, it's time. Daniel Andrews has resigned as Premier of Victoria and it was another surprise decision and follows on from the resignation of the Premier of Western Australia, Mark McGowan, earlier this year. Daniel Andrews was the Premier for nine years and won three consecutive elections in 2014, 2018 and 2022 and perhaps the most satisfying election for him would have been in 2022 where it seemed that the entire media industry in Melbourne was against him. The Herald Sun, The Age, The ABC, Channel 7, Channel 9, Channel 10, yet he managed to increase his majority at the 2022 election. Every leader has got a use-by date, and after nine years, a leader is going to accumulate a lot of political problems that need to be resolved, and they'll end up getting a lot of detractors as well. But Daniel Andrews will be remembered as a very successful Premier, and much to the chagrin of the mainstream media and the Liberal Party, he'll also end up getting his statue installed in Treasury Place. What a terrible waste of taxpayers' money putting in a statue of the late, unlamented dictator Dan. The level of hate is not quite unprecedented, but it's certainly unhinged. Someone asked at the press conference, given that how divisive you were, and I'm not sure you could call a 
Premier who had a consistent rating of over 60% divisive. And I'm not sure that when you add in, he increases his majority in the third term, which is, again, not unprecedented, but pretty rare. It was a very strange question to ask. Nobody asked that of Gladys Berejiklian, who objectively made the state worse. No one asked it of Mike Baird, who objectively made the state worse. No one asked it of Dominic Perrottet, who admittedly is still a member of the New South Wales Parliament, but who objectively made the state worse. Critics of Dan Andrews point to his massive debt. What they don't like to point to is that the debt actually has a point, that the debt is being used to fund much-needed and forward-looking infrastructure. Melbourne has become a nicer place since the Andrews government took over. And his handling of the pandemic was stymied by the Ruby Princess and the inconsistent and poorly thought through and incompetent management of it in New South Wales, where we had the worst minister in all of the Commonwealth, a list that includes Tony Abbott, by the way, a list that includes Peter Dutton, deliberately not managing the pandemic. And I know Brad Hazard is a state minister and the other two are federal, but that's how bad Hazard was. No health minister in any state or federal government of Australia was worse than Brad Hazard. There wasn't a lot he did wrong. There's a little bit of Labor Party shenanigans that probably take a bit of shine off the halo a little bit. But he also believed, and I think this is crucial, good policy is good politics. And he said, I I was never scared of doing the unpopular thing if it was the right thing. And this paid off in spades because time and time again, for the most part, he was shown to be right. And I think people appreciate good government more than they appreciate, as he said, you try and please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody and nothing gets done. And I think that time and time again, he was able to not just explain his position, but demonstrate that his position was in fact the right way to go, or at least one of the right ways to go. When it wasn't, he generally fixed it up, or at least acknowledged that it was the wrong way to go. I think he will go down as one of Victoria's better premiers, maybe even the best. And I know a lot of you listening will say, David, he was the best. And it's probably a little bit too soon. We have to let it all sink in. But certainly, he's one of the the very best premiers, not just of Victoria, but one of the very best premiers of the Australian Federation, but even going back to 1854 when New South Wales was formed. And today might be sounding a little bit like a festival of Daniel Andrews, and in some sense it is, but we're mainly trying to provide a balance to all the rubbish that's been hurled through the media at Daniel Andrews and the Victoria Labor Party and the Victoria Labor government over the past nine years. Daniel Andrews has managed Victoria very well over the past nine years and also implemented an ambitious infrastructure plan and social reforms, including public housing, voluntary euthanasia, programs to address domestic violence, universal childcare, instigated a process for a treaty with First Nations people. Victoria constantly had the lowest unemployment levels in Australia and Generally, the Victoria Labor government managed the economy well. And don't believe all the negative media headlines about economic mismanagement and high levels of debt that you're seeing in the Herald Sun and The Age and all those other newspapers. Like The current level of public sector debt in Victoria is $139 billion, and that's compared to the debt in New South Wales of $135 billion. And you might say, well, Victoria's got a smaller population, and that's absolutely correct. And the per capita debt is $21,000 per person in Victoria and $17,000 in New South Wales. So there is a difference there, but we also have to remember that Victoria gave more in income support than any other state during the early part of COVID. And that's because they were totally stuffed around by the Morrison government who decided to divert much-needed vaccines to his good friend Gladys Berejiklian in New South Wales and stalled on the income support for Victoria. And Victoria is also in a better position to manage that debt into the future than New South Wales is. But all up, 
when you assess and compare Victoria with New South Wales and take all the different factors into account, there's not that much difference in the debt levels and debt management of Victoria and New South Wales. But we hear all about the debt problems in Victoria, but we never hear about the debt problems in New South Wales, even though the issues are close to being identical. And the other factor is that Melbourne is one of the most livable cities in the world. And hello to all of our friends in Melbourne. It's got a fast-growing population. Melbourne is set to become the biggest city in Australia within the next five years or so. And more people are wanting to move to Victoria than any other state. So there must be something that Daniel Andrews has been doing right over the past nine years, even if the mainstream media will never acknowledge that. People love living under dictatorships. I'm sure that's it. And one that resigns of his own accord as well. (laughs) That's right. It's been a steady hand, I think. And yes, there's some problems, but not like New South Wales. There's calls for him to go to federal politics. Only two premiers have gone on to become prime minister. That was George Reid in 1905 and Joseph Lyons in 1931. There's been a few who've gone into the ministry and done okay and done well, but generally state premiers going into federal politics don't do quite as well. And I suspect there's a whole range of reasons. One, burnout and personal reasons. Two, federal politics is different to state politics. Three, they haven't spent 20 years building up a career in federal politics. And so there's all those other factors that might see you kept out of a job that you may be very eminently qualified for, but someone else has been working towards it for 20 years and the party or the prime minister or whomever's making the choice decides that the other person deserves it more. So we're not quite sure what Daniel Andrews will do now, but no leader is perfect. And in the past, there have been branch stacking issues. You referred to some of those before, David. There was misuse of electoral funds at the 2014 election campaign. There were also those IBAC investigations into corruption allegations taking on the Commonwealth Games in early 2022. That was an incredibly poor decision. But a lot of these were smaller issues that were constantly magnified by a hostile media because that's just what they do and that's just what they wanted to do. So it's hard to know in reality how big those scandals were because they were just magnified out of all proportion. And the media behaviour during most of... Daniel Andrews' time as Premier was unprofessional, it was quite outrageous, it was unhinged and it was maniacal. They were like a pack of wounded, rabid dogs and it's still continuing today. Every news outlet in Melbourne is taking a swipe at Daniel Andrews. He was Premier for nine years and a very successful Premier. He won three elections in a row. He won 55 out of 86 seats in the 2022 election and currently has got the Labor Party at 60% in two-party preferred vote and his preferred Premier by two to one in the most recent opinion polls. So he has gone, but this seems to be a pretty good level of success. And the Victoria public seems to agree with that, but not at the offices of the Herald Sun or the Age or at the ABC. And the new Premier of Victoria is Jacinta Allen. And I think it was pretty obvious that she was going to be the next in line whenever that time arrived. And it has arrived now. So the federal media is celebrating the departure of Daniel Andrews and it won't take long for their juvenile and unprofessional behaviour to be transferred over to the new Premier. The next election in Victoria isn't due until November 2026, so there's a bit of time there for Jacinta Allen to solidify her position, but I don't think it will take very long for the mainstream media to start ganging up on the new Premier, Jacinta Allen. This leads us back, I think, to the influence of Murdoch. One of the things that Daniel Andrews was never scared of was journalists. Every day during the pandemic, he stood up and he took the most ridiculous and pointless questions, and he answered them all as best as he could. How he didn't treat some of them with the contempt they absolutely deserved defeats me. And Occasionally, too, good journalists will ask silly questions. They haven't thought through it. It's been a rush. It's They're tired. What sounds good in your head comes out, and it's not as good as it sounded in your head. But this was day after day after day after day after day of basically asking him why this conspiracy is true, to confirm the conspiracy that it's all made up and that he's only doing it to control everything. And instead of kowtowing to them and bending public policy so that the press 
would give you better stories, which is what happened in other states, say New South Wales, for example. He kept a firm vision for the longest time before I think finally succumbing to the fact that while New South Wales was acting unprofessionally, it was going to be too hard for Victorians to keep going into lockdown and and too damaging. And so he he relaxed lockdown laws. And Jacinta Allen, I don't think she'll get the same level of visceral hate because if you've got that much hate in you to transfer it from one person to another, you have very severe issues that need to be dealt with very quickly. I think Jacinda Allen's biggest challenge is that she's not Daniel Andrews and that she has a, a huge legacy of mostly positive results to deal with. Most people thought that he might step down halfway through the term or two-thirds of the way through the term. He thought that he'd make it through this term and then probably stand down at the next election. As it happened, he didn't have the petrol in the tank as Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand described it when she stepped down. She just didn't have enough petrol in the tank. And I suspect Daniel Andrews who don't forget had a a serious accident last year and has been dealing with that. Add to that the constant torrent of nonsense and I'm surprised he's lasted this long. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon. Now, we don't normally talk about public servants, but the head of the Department of Home Affairs, Michael Pizzullo, he's been stood down after it was revealed that he was getting more engaged as a partisan political player during the time that the Liberal National Coalition was in government, including advocating for more extreme Liberal Party MPs to become the Minister of Home Affairs, making disparaging comments about Julie Bishop, who was seeking to become the Minister of the Department at the time. He suggested that former Labor Senator Christina Keneally was looking quite unhinged and there's a whole lot of other references that he's made to both Labor and Liberal politicians. So I guess there's there's a balance of perspective there. But these were all private text message exchanges between Pizzullo and Liberal Party MPs at the time and that doesn't really matter if they were private or not. The issue is that the public service has to be apolitical and independent of the government of the day. And Michael Pizzullo, who is perhaps the most powerful public servant in Canberra, he hasn't been apolitical or independent, and he probably needs to go. He can't stay. If the government is serious about restoring standards, Pizzullo has to go. There was those people thinking they shouldn't have renewed his contract, that he should have gone with the rest of them. And there might have been a part of me thinking, yeah, okay, we can't get rid of everyone and he's he's been there and that experience might be useful, et cetera, et cetera, giving him the benefit of the doubt. But it's clear now his position is untenable. That he gets over $900,000 a year is outrageous. I think one of the things that we'll be seeing over the next five years is the rates of pay for heads of the public service to start to drop. They just haven't shown the value, at least in Australia. Pizzullo being paid three times what the Prime Minister is being paid is just not tenable. I don't know that the current government quite has the will to do it for a range of reasons, both good and bad. They've got a lot of other stuff to do. They've been doing a lot of other stuff. Reform has to take time. You can't cut someone's pay as such. You just have to wait for them to go. But I wonder if the next head will be on... 600 or 500,000 rather than 900. The other point is that Michael Pizzullo was initially appointed by a Labor government. He was actually Deputy Chief of Staff to former Labor leader Kim Beasley. So that means that he's a Labor Party hack who would have been loyal to the Labor Party. But to survive in the public service in these sorts of positions, 
Well, you do have to be loyal to the government of the day, and the coalition was in government for most of the time Pizzullo has been in the public service. Now, maybe he's just trying to show his credentials to the coalition government that he could be trusted to rat on Labor Party MPs or throw dirt on Liberal Party MPs who didn't fit into that ultra-conservative model that Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison wanted to espouse and promote. His term doesn't expire until October 2024, and it's pretty obvious that Anthony Albanese doesn't want to be accused of meddling within the public service. He resisted all of those calls to remove the head of the robo-debt system, Catherine Campbell, and pretty much got her to do the equivalent of watching a clock on a wall until the findings of the robo-debt Royal Commission were released, and then she resigned of her own accord, or... That at least is the official story. And the leaking of these text messages could end up being the same thing where the Labor government can have a hands-off approach to removing these people and say, oh, look, Catherine Campbell wasn't pushed. She resigned of her own accord. Or with Michael Pizzullo, they can probably say, oh, he breached public service protocols and he had to resign because of that. But this is just such a slow process. There should have been the night of the long knives with all of these people as soon as the Labor government came into office in May 2022. It took about a year for Catherine Campbell to go and it will take a little while longer for Michael Pizzullo to go if this actually gets to that stage. And we know what the coalition would have done in this situation. These people would have been removed immediately, and that's what they did do when Tony Abbott became Prime Minister in 2013, and that's against all the principles of the public service. But what do you do? Do you put in all of your own people as soon as possible because that's what your predecessors did, or do you just put up with these people that will create all sorts of problems until they decide to go? And I just think that this slow burn of removing public servants in this way doesn't actually do anyone any favours, but I'm just not sure what the best solution is. Back in the day, you have heads of the public servants who were there for a long time and who served both sides of politics fairly and frankly and freely and who built up careers and got fairly remunerated, but also were rewarded with knighthoods or Order of Australia medals. And if they acted properly, had exceptionally good reputations that you really couldn't get in corporate field. This all changed, of course, when shorter-term contracts where public servants started to act as if they had something to lose. I'm not sure that it's a good thing to have someone run a department for 28 and 29 years and things like that. I think that creates different problems. But I think we need longer-term contracts and public servants who are put on for a life tenure and you do 10 years in this department and 10 years in that department, 10 years in that department, you might get another 10 years in another department and that's it. But you have to stay in the position long enough. You can't be sacked, but you have to, unless you're acting improperly like Pizzullo obviously was doing, and there's a term limit, but then you move somewhere else rather than the lack of security, which means that you're more likely to do things that agree with the minister and the minister's advisors rather than do what is right and good policy. So I think we need to rethink the career model of you knife your way to the top, essentially. Not everybody did, of course. Hello to all our senior public servants who listen. You're all wonderful people and we love you to death. You have to play the game to keep the job rather than do the job to keep the job. We need to go back to a fair, balanced frank, free public service rather than what we've had over the last 20 years that hasn't served us terribly well and has led to large corporations running amok and public servants acting like politicians. I, mean, I suppose it is fair if the Prime Minister is thinking, uh, who should I put in? I've got these two great candidates from Western Australia going to the public servant and saying, which one do you think you'd work a little bit better with? But that's a different approach and not inappropriate. And as long as the public servant isn't put on the spot about it, a private conversation in that kind of way is I don't have that much of a problem with. The other interesting thing, I'll just very quickly, is that obviously someone's out to get him. He's overplayed his hand. I don't know who leaked the text, and I'm not sure we'll ever know who leaked them, but whoever leaked them really wanted him gone. Australians will well recall, will never forget uh, what the country went through in 2020 and 2021 in particular. It was a time where Australians joined together. They made sacrifices 
to help each other. Uh, they sacrificed some of the normal activity uh, that would go on. And it was a very disruptive period in our lives, but we got through it. And we got through it in a way that uh, was uh, positive in most respects, but we need to examine what went right, uh, what could be done better with a focus on the future. Because the health experts and the science tells us that this pandemic uh, may well be, indeed is not likely to be the last one that occurs. So that's why better preparedness is very important. So the inquiry uh, that we're announcing today uh, will look at as well the more than 20 inquiries that have already happened up to now. Bring them all together in a consolidated way, but also look at uh, new information uh, which will occur. Uh, one of the things that I want to do from the lessons as well is to ensure that we're positive, that the process of learning from the pandemic is constructive rather than destructive. Uh, one of the things that didn't help uh, during the pandemic uh, was the sort of activity like when the federal government supported Clive Palmer's legal case rather than supported Mark McGowan and the actions that the WA government were taking. Uh, but we need to make sure that this is uh, forward focused and consider all of the Commonwealth responses to the pandemic. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has announced the Commonwealth Government COVID-19 response inquiry and it is to be a far-reaching inquiry to look at what happened during the early stages of the pandemic and how the government can prepare for pandemics in the future. And it's not a case where the current COVID-19 pandemic is over. That's still an issue that does have to be managed as well. But this is going to be a far-reaching inquiry, looking at governance issues, quarantine issues, looking at what the Commonwealth government and the state and territory governments are responsible for because the delineations haven't been too clear financial support for individuals and businesses, and vaccine security. Governments have to learn from previous experience. When COVID arrived in early 2020, no government around the world knew what to do. Scientists and doctors were very unsure what to do. And whatever mistakes were made at the time, of which there were many, well, they have to be addressed and we have to make sure that they don't happen again. And the current pandemic is still going on. I think that it actually has been managed reasonably well, despite some of the earlier problems and despite the ongoing problems that are still happening at the moment. But the next pandemic could be quite different to COVID-19 and it is best to be prepared as much as possible. But the big focus so far has been on two issues, that this is an inquiry rather than a Royal Commission. And it probably should be a Royal Commission, although that's more of a case of testing evidence provided by witnesses and it's more like a court of law. An inquiry of this nature will look at expert material and advice before deciding on a series of recommendations. And the other issue is that unilateral actions taken by state and territory governments are not within the scope of the inquiry. And this has set up all sorts of conspiracies that Albanese has done this to protect Labor premiers. But the problem with this narrative is that half of the states at the time were run by Liberal Party premiers. So it's not clear what the objections are here. I think from a lot of people on the right, it is about some of the behaviours of some of the premiers of certain states. Daniel Andrews, for example. For example, yes, being brought out into the light. I think these types of things have to be carefully managed because Gladys Berejiklian as premier obviously didn't do as well as she might have and Brad Hazard as health minister. But you have to be careful that it doesn't become or be seen to become the witch hunt that its critics are claiming it's going to be, before they've even seen any evidence, which probably says more than you need to know, if they set it up properly, even if it's set up in such a way that nobody gets in trouble, but we get a lot of lessons of, you know, and even things like be careful how you implement a, a mandate, the amount of anger that a lot of people got from wearing a mask and still do is unbelievable as if it's anybody's business what you wear. If you're wearing a mask to rob a bank, that's one thing. But if you want to wear a mask just on general principle, who cares? If you want to wear a short sleeve T-shirt in the middle of winter, who cares? If you want to have a tattoo or cut your hair in such a way, that's nobody's business. And so some of that might have been managed better, but that takes us back to how the media handled it and how it gave these less rational voices a say where a better media 
wouldn't have taken them as seriously. And I think this is one of those issues which have been misrepresented and incorrectly reported within the media, and there's absolutely no surprises there. And the narrative started off with this idea that the actions of the states and territories were not going to be included at all within this inquiry, and that's absolutely incorrect. And this created an outrage for the sake of an outrage. And the media led this narrative that Daniel Andrews and Anastasia Palaszczuk were going to be let off the hook. For what? We don't know yet. But the inquiry does actually include the actions of state and territory governments. It just excludes the unilateral actions of the state and territory governments. And there's quite a few issues here. First of all, there's jurisdictional issues that exist between federal and state rights and responsibilities. There has already been an inquiry into the Victoria government's management of the COVID pandemic. New South Wales also had an inquiry into the Ruby Princess debacle as well. And there's also not so many unilateral decisions by the states and territories that we can look at. And of course, the big one was the issue of lockdowns and the mask mandates that you referred to before, David. And there were issues relating to policing and hospital management. And the federal government doesn't have any control over these issues. And there's also that issue that the media has been pushing that Albanese just wanted to protect Labor premiers. But Three of the states when the pandemic began, and for most of the period since the pandemic commenced, have been Liberal Party-held states, New South Wales, South Australia and Tasmania. So this is another false narrative pushed by the media and supported by the federal Liberal Party, even though the Liberal Party's probably got the most to lose by a deeper inquiry into the role of state governments during the pandemic. Again, I don't know what... Anna Palaszczuk or Dan Andrews did, except look after the state. But a, an inquiry might find some irregularities and some impropriety in those states. I'm not about to bet the house on it. It's not impossible. Probably the best managed state was Western Australia, who just closed the border. There was just no going in and no going out. And so while New South Wales, we had curfews and helicopters, at least in the inner west of Sydney where I am, Western Australia was able to maintain its normal standard of life for a bit longer. So there's that. It's Yes Minister, isn't it, that said, you never hold an inquiry till you know what the answer is. I'm hoping that the government has done that because it could well spin right out of control and damage more people than it should. I think on that question of whether it should be a Royal Commission or just an inquiry, there would have been value in having a Royal Commission and there are lots of similarities but quite a few essential differences between a Royal Commission and an inquiry. Sometimes a better result can be gained through an inquiry, sometimes a better result can be gained through a Royal Commission. It just depends on what you're after and what answers you're after as well. But just to point out that Scott Morrison, during the 2022 federal election campaign, he did say yes, there should be an inquiry into COVID management, but he didn't say anything about a Royal Commission. Anthony Albanese suggested, well, yes, it should be an inquiry or a Royal Commission. He didn't commit to either one of those. He just said that there should be something to investigate the management of the COVID pandemic. But if Albanese had instigated a Royal Commission, well, the media would have just criticised him for just being a witch hunt against Scott Morrison and the Liberal National Coalition, or the Liberal Party would find something else to complain about, remembering that they always complain about anything and say no to everything. And at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, we assumed that something as big as COVID would have bipartisan support and be an apolitical process. But that was before Scott Morrison decided to make it into a partisan event and politicise the entire management of the pandemic. But it just seems that in modern politics, there's never any interest in bipartisan support, especially when there's a Labor government in office. Yeah, it's... One of the big problems, and this takes us back to, again, what Murdoch allowed, was this notion that you just cannot give any bipartisan support on anything because it might, I don't know, it might seem that you're weak or it might seem that agreeing with anyone who's vaguely to the left of you makes you a soft leftist, commie, communal... Pinko. Pinko, herbal, vegan... And all the other words that they throw as abuse, woke, nearly forgot woke, a lot of which aren't terms of abuse, a lot of which may even be seen as badges of pride or firmly held genuine beliefs. Well, I'm very proud to be pinko woke. I am too. Howard Stern, the US shock jock, said if you're woke, it means you're not asleep and not accepting just anything. 
and that you're accepting of people. It was quite surprising from a character such as Howard Stern, but welcome that he has thought about this. I think that it's a very immature, and we can see the way that they acted in, in nine years of federal government. They acted like a, the rabble school kids up the back of a bus. I, I hope that the inquiry clears up a lot of stuff. For some people, of course, it'll never clear up anything, that it was all a United Nations plot to something, something, child abuse, decimal currency, something, something. But we should be ignoring those people rather than platforming them. And there has been a batch of recent opinion polls with the latest news poll seeing a huge drop in support for Peter Dutton's approval ratings and he's currently at a level of minus 10. I know I wouldn't be cheering too much if I was Anthony Albanese. His approval rating, it is in positive territory, but it's only three points. But the most important figure is that the two-party preferred vote for the Labor government is at 54% and 46% for the Liberal National Coalition. And in every state across Australia, Labor is polling way ahead of the Liberal National Coalition. The only issue is that there's no election on the horizon and there isn't an election due until May 2025. So there isn't too much to worry about for the Labor government, but events can change pretty quickly. And what I read into these polls is that the public feels that the government is doing okay. The leader of the opposition is deeply unpopular but they're expecting a lot more from the Prime Minister than they're currently getting. Look, we're still, what, two years away from the next election? I mean, I think over the long term, what the polls are showing is that voters, particularly younger voters, are getting jaded with the current party system. The Liberal Party is essentially dead in at least two to three states, Western Australia, Victoria, South Australia, maybe Tasmania, maybe in New South Wales. It might not be dead, but it's dying. Labor has filled the gap in the way that gas expands into a vacuum, but it hasn't resoundingly filled the gap. The consistent high polling of independent candidates who've won the seats, Kylie Tink, Allegra Spender, Zali Stegall, Monique Ryan, shows that people in safe Liberal seats are less interested in voting for the party rather than voting for the policy. And I think that's the secret for both parties' success, to look at policies that fit within your broader ideological perspective but are also appealing to the population. And again, Dan Andrews gave the model, good policy goes to good politics. That was the Bob Hawke model. It was the Kevin Rudd model. It was probably the Julia Gillard model, but she was never allowed to impose it as such, at least not publicly, although there were some good policies in the Gillard government. And she's got a much better reputation than the the people who followed her. The next five elections over the next 15 years or so will be extremely interesting. But I think we're heading into one of those periods of time where seismic changes are happening. And we might not be able to see them as such, but we'll get through the end of them and think, wow, that just happened. And in politics, governments and prime ministers are always susceptible to political change or events, and there are always only one or two bad decisions away from oblivion. And that's probably what Anthony Albanese is trying to avoid at the moment. And there have been suggestions that Albanese and the federal Labor government should be more like the... Andrew's government in Victoria, as you suggested before, David, and implement a more radical agenda and fast-track that as well. But we also have to remember that Daniel Andrews was initially a cautious leader as well, and he did win the 2014 Victoria election, and it was just a narrow election victory, and he started to slowly implement his reforms during that first term. But the electorate at least could see what the government was building towards. And it was only after the 2018 landslide election that he ramped up the infrastructure projects and started implementing more of his social reforms as well. So 
The point is that Daniel Andrews was not a radical leader when he first became Premier in 2014 in Victoria. And there also might be an argument that he's never actually been a radical leader anyway, but he's definitely a more reformist Premier than many others that we've had in the past. But I think the message in these opinion polls is that the electorate is wanting to see more from Anthony Albanese. And he's actually got higher disapproval ratings, which I find surprising because he's not really a divisive political character. But Maybe this is signifying that he's too low-key and maybe not revealing enough of what the Labor government will do for the rest of this term and into the future if they do manage to win the next election. And there is enough time between now and the next election to fill in all of those gaps and provide the narrative about what this government is all about. But in the midterm of this parliamentary term, it just feels a little bit like the government is meandering. I, like, I wonder what happened to the dynamic Penny Wong And it may be that she's just off being dynamic outside of the press and just going in and doing her work, and I suspect that is a big part of it. But she was always tougher than everyone else, always smarter than everyone else, always a better media performer than almost anyone else. There's a couple who are her equal, but she's up there. One wonders what happened to Mark Dreyfus, the Mark Dreyfus we saw in opposition, or even Jim Chalmers. He... Jim still comes out with stuff on occasion, but we're not seeing the really excellent minds of these people come through. And again, it might be that in three months or six months, all this stuff will be released and we'll say, oh, that's what they were doing. And I I hope that's the case. I don't know that it is. And it would be disappointing if it's not. But there seems to be the power of we must win the next election before we do anything, which I don't think is the best way of handling things. And in the same news poll result, it shows that the support for the Voice to Parliament referendum has slipped further behind. 36% say yes, they will support the Voice to Parliament. 56% have said no. It was suggested in leaked emails from the Liberal Party that they had to defeat the Voice to Parliament to land a political defeat on the Prime Minister and bring themselves back into contention for the next federal election. But these figures are showing a contradiction where the referendum is headed for defeat, and that's part one of the Liberal Party equation, but they're not getting any political benefit from it. And they might be landing blows on the popularity of Anthony Albanese. They might defeat something that would be beneficial to First Nations people, but they're making themselves even more unpopular and making Peter Dutton even more unelectable. And this is what we've been predicting for some time, David, with the position that they've taken, that the Liberal Party is just in a lose-lose situation, that they could have been ethical and could have gone for the win-win situation, as Jeff Kennett used to say, but they chose the low path, they chose the path of division, the position of hatred, and they're being marked down for that by the electorate in these opinion polls. And the way that it's looking at the moment, just on two weeks away, the referendum might end up being defeated, but it's going to end up resulting in an even bigger defeat for the Liberal Party. They tried to drag everyone down to their level, but it looks like they'll be the ones left behind in the mud. At the end of their careers, what are they going to look back on? Yeah, we own the left and that Americanism. We stop urgent reform to environmental policy. I was able to increase the investment returns of a few people rather than help the nation of Australia as a whole in some kind of way. I just don't understand. I understand that you might look at things from a right-wing perspective or a left-wing perspective and still want to improve Australia. And we can argue, and we do argue, whether these things actually do or not. But the current Federal Liberal Party in particular, and the Victorian and the New South Wales, seem quite content in not actually achieving any positive gain for Australia, even if it is something that you or I mightn't agree with. And yet at the end of, again, Daniel Andrews gives them the message, go and do what is right and retire on your own terms. How many people really get to do that? Not many. I've mentioned before, Enoch Powell, the one thing I think I really agreed with him with is that all political careers end in failure. And that's mostly true. Daniel Andrews, Jacinda Ardern, 
I think both of them would have regrets for the things that they just weren't able to to finish. But I don't think anyone who doesn't have a visceral hatred, even people who don't agree with them on a more reasonable level, would say that they had fairly successful careers, even if they didn't agree with how they did it and what happened and what they did. They set out to do things and they did them. Whereas the federal Liberal Party doesn't seem to want to do that. They just want to make sure that nothing gets done to the benefit of very few people. And they get people to vote for them, although, as the polls are suggesting, less and less and less people. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Thank you.